This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing. Hello, and welcome to Graphic Novel TK. I'm Gina Gagliano. And I'm Allison Wilgus. Um, Printing. How do books get physically made? Today, we're going to talk about that. Um, We have an exciting guest here, Linda Palladino, who's the Vice President and Director of Production at Random House Children's Books. Uh, Linda, thanks for joining us. Thanks for asking me. Linda, can you tell us a little about who you are, how you got into working in production, and what you're doing now, and how also you work with comics? So I got into production because I had an uncle who actually was in the business, used to work for McCall's Magazine when there was a McCall's Magazine. And he was always someone who I thought was interesting. He'd talk about his job. He was director of production. I'd ask a lot of questions when I was a kid, and he just hooked me. And then I got out of college. I was an English major, as most of us, I think, in publishing wind up being. And I was thinking, what could I do? I knew I wanted to get into it. I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be an editor or what. And my uncle said, well, I have some friends. Let me ask around. And they said, there's an opening for an assistant down at Scholastic. And so I went and applied and got the job and was surprised because I had no idea what production was. (laughs) You always hear about you know, all the other aspects, I'd say, and you never hear anybody talk about production. It's marketing, it's publicity, it's editorial, it's design. But how do the books get made? So from working at Scholastic, you went through jobs at a number of other different publishers. You ended up at Random House, uh, where you're being the vice president of production, but also getting to work on some comics now and that. Yes. And it's always been something that's fascinating to me. I have someone on my staff who actually is an independent publisher of comics, a few graphic novels. And we just have these conversations because to me, it's fascinating. How do you do this on your own? How do you come up with the concepts? How do you find the illustrators? And so I just have become more and more immersed in hearing her story and what her challenges are and then looking at what's going on in the industry because you have reluctant readers, you have kids that words on a page are not really interesting. But if you tell a story in pictures, I think of comics when I was a kid growing up and, you know, even Mad Libs and all of that when you go through these different scenarios and how they're just not words on a page. They're pictures, and it takes you into another world. So we were very excited when we heard that we were going to start a whole imprint geared towards graphic novels and comics. The entire comic industry was very excited (laughs) about Penguin Random House having a graphic novel imprint. It was like all that anybody could talk about. Kind of still is a little bit, actually. Especially because Gina was involved. It was like a double good <laughs> gossip. Like it, was, it was like the gossip sandwich. It was excellent. You, you, you both are possibly more excited and more talking about this all the time as you both know me and work with me all the time. No, it just meant that everybody was asking me about it because I know you <laughs> work with you all the time. And to be honest, I don't know why we weren't in it sooner. Because to me, this when you have a reluctant reader and 
boys, for example, come to mind, and how do you get a boy to get into reading? It's sometimes challenging, but if you give them a graphic novel or a comic, that's a way to appeal to them, and you suck them in, and you've got a reader for life. So I was totally excited. I've been an admirer of books that you had published, and when we were talking about this and it was just a thought, I was like, why don't we look at someone at one of our competitors? And I think I might have named your company. Uh-huh. Well, so you are a vice president and director of production, which that seems like a pretty impressive job title. What does that actually mean you do on a daily basis? On a daily basis, I guess I am in meetings, and I'm always <laughs> in meetings, generally having to do with printer capacity, kind of how do we, as you know, a large children's publisher, manage our needs? Meaning, you know, we're not just doing one-offs. We can customize, but we have to be able to deliver and meet all of our needs of our editors. So it's always a challenge to figure out who would be a good partner for us because you want to have something that's original in trim, in paper, but you also need to be able to repeat it if something takes off and get it back into stock quickly. I just am fascinated by the whole industry, to be honest. And when I got into production, I thought about it as it's creative, even though often it's not seen as creative. But we get to work with illustrators. We get to work with fabulous editors. We actually help to make their vision come to life, which is really like almost a big puzzle. So I was going to say it's creative both because you're literally making a, a artwork, but also it's creative because it's like a giant puzzles, problem solving thing continuously. Absolutely. And you have wants and needs that sometimes don't match with the prices that are involved. So there's always for any type of customization, or if you're looking to do something out of the norm, how do you make that happen? But make the pricing work also. And, you know, those are the challenges. And I've worked with great, you know, a real variety of folks throughout the industry. And I think the thing that always kept me coming back was, how do I solve this puzzle? It's kind of like a Rubik's Cube. Here you have these thoughts, and you have to help kind of guide and work together in partnership, which I think is the best part of our business. So I'm thinking about some specific problems you're dealing with, like backing up a second, you talked about printer capacity. Can you like unpack that a little bit for people? Like what exactly do you mean when you're saying that? So years ago, there used to be a lot of smaller printing companies, and you had a lot of assets all around the country. So printing presses from big web presses to sheet-fed presses. What are those things? Oh, they're the way you get your pages printed. So a sheet-fed press is really a custom-sized sheet, and you can print one, four, five, depending upon the number of cylinders and what you're looking to print, but it allows you to have a greater variety of trim sizes because you have small presses in sheet size and you have larger ones. So you can do things that are a little more different. When you have a web press, it's think of it like, okay, a big roll of toilet paper that goes through a very high-speed machine, and you're printing at great speeds, and you're printing only certain trim sizes because there's a fixed cutoff because there's just this roll, and it cuts in sections. So you might print in 8s, you might print in 16s, 32s, 64s, 
Whereas on a sheet-fed press, you know, you're having a smaller signature size, depending upon your trim. So yes, you were saying there used to be a lot of different smaller printers doing different kinds of printing. And as the industry evolved, I'd say it first started probably with educational publishing when um, you had different publishers that were going for state adoptions and you needed certain trim sizes and educational guidelines. So in other words, there's NASTA specs which come into play, which means that certain types of bindings, because school books need to be durable? Are they consumable, non-consumable? All of that. Over the years, I'd say that the educational industry started to narrow their supplier base. They were looking to negotiate contracts and to basically get better pricing, and it became harder for the smaller independent shops to compete. So we have now basically shrunk the amount of printers that are here in the U.S. And we recently had a very big merger. We also had another big printer or relatively big printer go out suddenly overnight. Um, They had borrowed against their pension plan to put in new equipment, and literally the courts shut them down overnight. So... So this is like a specific problem that's happening right now. Like printer capacity is exciting publishing-wide issue. Right. Literally, like there are not necessarily enough printers in the way that you would normally be working with them to print the books that you need to get printed. All of us in the publishing industry, especially trade publishers, tend to print in certain seasons. So the fall season is usually the biggest season for a trade publisher, and everyone wants their books all at the same time. And if over the years you have this consolidation of printers in the industry, then there are fewer and fewer, and there's only so many presses and so many more books to be printed. I think that while ago, when ebooks first came out, everybody wrote off the written word or the printed word, I guess I should say. And I was probably one of the only people that thought print is not dead. Now that could be that I was just clinging to something that I felt comfortable (laughs) with. But I just thought, you know, there's something to be said for what you can do on print that you can't do on the screen. So I didn't think it was going away. But I think a lot of people were betting that it would. And that led to more printer consolidation as ebooks and all things ebooks took off. But for kids' books and illustrated books, I think that the e-reading has never been as satisfying because you lose a perspective in the artwork. You lose the point of view of the different characters. So yeah. I'm happy to say print is back. Oh. <laughs> so as a production person, Printers are kind of your counterpart, right? So you have yes. part of your job that's working with all the people in-house and being like, okay, this, these are the things that you want. Let me, let's, let us figure out what strategy it takes to make them. And then the printers are the people that you are directly working with. Yes, that is. So what does a printer do? Like, what what's their job? What's, like, tell us all about them. Like, from what buildings they work in and what countries they're in and, like, how, how do they work? How do you work with them? So it depends. In the U.S., they're mostly in the Midwest. There are still some along the coast. 
you need to have a lot of land if you have a printing factory because the equipment is not small. So, for example, if you have a web press, it's several football fields big. So you can't be in, say, a city like Manhattan unless you're exceedingly wealthy and you have a lot of real estate just lying around. But generally, the plants are located in places in the Midwest or other parts of the country where land is a little less expensive and you can have these big sprawling factories. So you're saying that one web press is as big as a football field so that like it goes through one the size of one football field to print yeah. one yes. title. And then if they wish to like, for example, print like 10 or 20 books at a time, which I imagine that many printers would like they to do. do this, the printer building has to be like 20 times the size of a football field. Yes. So you may have not just one web press, you may have 10 web presses. And then you need, you know, you need to also have binding lines and all that goes into that. So if you think about it, these factories can be many, many football fields big. So they're really large. I will say that if you go to Asia, typically when most of the printers in Asia were in cities, they were on different floors. So whereas a U.S. printer might have enough space that they can actually lay out the factory so that you have the printing on one side and you flow through the plant and at the end you have the books on a pallet going into a truck because they have the space they can lay it out very efficiently in the way that the process works. Like the way you imagine a car getting put together where it's kind of going down this assembly line. Absolutely. Very much the assembly line kind of process. In, let's say, Hong Kong, when people first started printing in Asia, there were uh, buildings that had many floors. So on one floor, you might have one sheet-fed press. Then the next floor, you might have a binding line. So it was very different. I will say that as businesses grew and the printers in Asia kind of consolidated. They looked to move into China where the land was cheaper and they could build bigger, more sprawling factories, more similar to the factories that we have here in the U.S. Just visually imagining like a dumbwaiter system that takes the books upstairs and downstairs from the enormous elevator. And it kind of was like that. And it was very interesting when you could go and get into what is a freight elevator and literally feel like you were in the dumbwaiter and go floor to floor. And Even now when I go, there are still some factories where you're going up and down different flights of stairs. So on my most recent trip, I think one day I put six miles and 15 flights of stairs in touring two factories in one day. I will say I was tired by the end. So, I mean, uh, most people will know this already if you're listening to the podcast in order, but just to take a second here. So when we're talking, for instance, about the like a web-fed press, you're talking about like 16s. or like You're basically talking about signatures, right? Like yes, that's where signatures, signatures come from. Yes, absolutely. So when you're turning your book into your publisher and they're like, hey, do you have some bonus material? Because we've got eight pages left in the signature. It's because it was printed on this giant machine that yes. does pages and set stacks and if there isn't something on those pages they're going to get yes. go through the machine anyway so yes. you might as well print something so you might on as them. well print something it's free yep. in essence yes so can you take us through the process like you digitally send a file to the printer 
where, what do they do with it from there? How does it get made into a book? Can you kind of like take us through all the steps there? Like there's a word called like a separators in here somewhere. Yeah, separators, which are part of the pre-press, as we call it, when you're making a book. And it depends on what you start with. Sometimes there are illustrations that are oil paintings. They can be on all different types of medium. I once had a book painted on wood, um, large pieces of wood <laughs> that, that like were very, <laughs> very, very hard to uh, transport overseas. We had to pack them very carefully. Hopefully it was just a picture book and not a 200-page graphic novel. It was a picture book, and yes. So it depends what the medium is. We've gone more digital nowadays, I will say that the biggest change that I, I as someone who's been in the industry a long time, when you had illustrations, the art director would direct the illustrator. So you'd start with rough drawings, then you'd have tight sketches, you'd go through multiple phases to get to the finished piece. And usually the illustrator, whatever medium, they would make up a palette that would stay the same throughout the book. I think one of the challenges nowadays with digital artwork is you get a file and none of our screens are color calibrated. So depending upon who looks at that file and what you print that file out on, whether it's a big color Xerox machine or something more specific like an Epson, but then you need to know what the profiles are of the printer that you're printing at. And you know how do you also take the color of the paper into the background? Because that has a big effect on how your artwork looks. So I think with digital illustration, it's great. But I also worry sometimes when it appears that perhaps the illustrators are not trained the way that old school illustrators were. So the attention to detail, (laughs) characters remaining the same color or clothing or important pieces of the story. And so like this is why proofs are a thing is because you've looked at this in your screen, you've printed it in the printer in your office, but there's the question of, okay, what is this going to look like on the actual, ideally on the actual paper that this is actually going to get printed on by this printer with the ink they're going to use and all this material because what if it's really dark or what if everything's green or whatever. And I will say when you had real artwork, when you sent it to the separator or the pre-press house, they could look and see when they pulled a proof or they used their camera separations or scanner separations, which is breaking the art into four colors, they could see and evaluate and have something to go by. Unless you're sending with your digital files something that says, this is the color I want you to match, Mm -hmm. then you're not necessarily going to have any point of reference. And that's what the Pantone system is for in some contexts, right? In some contexts, but those only work if you need a flat color that is actually not going to have any type of texture. or That's like spot colors. Yes, spot colors. So with CMYK, which is where you can basically make all your colors from those four colors through the use of filters and all of that, you can more realistically capture what the human eye sees. But if you think about it, the human eye doesn't really see as much color as there is in the world. So it's a more fixed dimension, shall we say. 
Okay, so you've sent your files to the printer, you've gotten back your proofs so that you can look at the colors, probably also make sure that things aren't upside down, a very important part of the proofing process. Very important. <laughs> and then what happens? So you need to look at your artwork in what I call a color room or a color station. And that means there's a certain gray, so Macbeth gray, that the rooms are generally painted. And the this equipment is amazing. Is I, I want to point out to listeners that Gina have looked, we've literally <laughs> never heard of this before. And we're very excited. So if you come up to my floor, I have a color room pretty much outside of my office. Mm-hmm. But that's the only way we have certain lighting, so 5,000 Kelvin lighting. And because the gray doesn't distort any of the colors, you can actually view the same as your printer, whatever part of the country or pre-press house they might be, as long as we're all using the same standard. Because light has a lot of effect on the color you see. And if you look at it under fluorescence versus a color room, you will see very big shifts. So why is it called Macbeth Gray? It is basically copyrighted. It's a color management system that has been around for years. And they kind of set the standard and they work with other entities that are in the color management. Is the system called Macbeth? Yes. Okay. So they're like, we really want to associate color accuracy with possibly blood, possibly (laughs) regicide. Yes. And so that's why you really, you need to have some way to evaluate. If you're looking in what's a cool light, and I'm looking at something in what's a redder light, we're never going to see the color the same. And then you're going to be disappointed when your book comes in, depending upon what's important to the illustrator. So it's trying for fidelity. Because even the quality of daylight can be really different depending on the time of day or how cloudy it is or time of year. Absolutely. I mean, that changes everything. Yeah. So you're looking at the art. You feel like it's color room. Yes. (laughs) You've determined that you're good. All the pages are right side up. Everything's color accurate. And you say to the printer, Let's do this. So what what do they do? So then they just push a button, right? And then your books come out. Typically, before we say, let's do that, I'm going to want to see blues, okay, or what I call blues. So digital, ruled, in the page size, with the content, in the correct order, and the art. And it's very important for the editor, the illustrator, the managing editor, the copy editor, to look at that to make sure that the flow of the book is correct, there are no typos in the book, that suddenly an image or something is not being cut off. Once you have that and everybody agrees that it looks good to go, then you say to the printer, okay to print. And typically on press, they have color guidance, the proofs that you've marked up and you say, I like that color, they're going to try to replicate that as they're printing on the printing press. The thing that will affect how the book looks, though, is the channels, because depending upon what image runs behind another image can really affect whether you need more red, more blue, more yellow, or black. Unpack that a little bit more. What do you mean? So... 
typically when you're looking, let's talk sheet fed. So you have your CMYK, which is cyan, magenta, yellow, and black, and they're little channels. So think of the machines as having these keys that you open up and you put more of a color or less of a color. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a book. You have pages on the sheet. You'll look and you'll say, wow, those pages are not in order. But then when I fold the sheet up, you will see miraculously that what seemed like random placement of pages is suddenly a book Mm -hmm. and it's in the correct order. So depending upon what image runs in a certain relationship on a sheet and then the next image underneath it, if one needs a lot of red but the other image needs a lot of blue, then either you wind up with one purple compromise or you decide what's most important to you. Oh, that's so because like the, it's not like the machine can just click on and no, it's not digital. Like it's a it's a it's a physical machine. That ink is coming out of it. Like it, there's, right. there's physics involved. To be, there's yeah, phys- physics involved, and it has evolved much more so that typically now a lot of printers, when they have the color approved sheet, we have what are known as color bars. They will scan the color bars. And then when it actually starts the printing process with the ink and the toner and all of that that goes into all the chemicals when you're printing, you can then have a computer monitor that says, whoa, my red is up too high here. I need to come down. It's got a lot more checks and balances with the evolution of printing technology. But in the past, when it the presses were less, shall we say, techy. You had actual craftsmen who knew, oh, I can see that this is having too much in this, you know, one channel, as they refer it. So they'd go and they'd turn it down less or open it up a little more, depending. And so that's I mean, if you either as a cartoonist or maybe your friend or if you've seen a picture on Twitter mm-hmm. where you see the proofs of somebody's book and it has the stripe of colored blocks, like it's for this, it's for calibration yes, absolutely. So what does this machine look like? Can you give us like so, a verbal description okay. of the football field side? So, well, let's first start with the smaller sheet fed. So think about okay, a big rectangle. And then you have cylinders. And each cylinder has a color. So when you have an image on a plate where you want the ink to stick, then it's burned or the image is there, and there's a blanket. The blanket offsets to the cylinder. The ink goes down, but in the areas where there is no image, the water sticks. If people are confused, they should go look this up on YouTube. Yes, they should. There definitely are videos, but it's really about water and oil not mixing. Mm -hmm. So you don't have an image on the sheet. So basically you're saying that you you have the paper and then there's a plate. The one page image is on. And that gets formed into a cylinder. A cylinder. It gets wrapped around a cylinder. So a plate is a very thin sheet of metal, like micro inches, and it's wrapped around this cylinder. And so that gets rolled in ink, yes. and then it gets rolled against the a blanket, oh. and then the paper. Is the blanket soaked with ink or something? It's got water, mm-hmm. okay, and you've got the ink on the cylinder. So the cylinder gets inked. The water kind of where there's no image, and then the image actually offsets from the blanket onto the sheet. 
And that's why it's called offset printing. That's right. <laughs> I was hoping you'd give me that in there. Anyway, that's great. Yeah. And so for a web press, just think of it as a very big, long machine with lots of cylinders. And part of it is because you still have the number of colors that I'm talking about, but you also have ovens which dry the ink. Okay. And that sounds kind of scary. That's <laughs> no, great. That amazing. But, but, you know, you need to make sure because with a sheet fed press, you actually print one side, wait for the sheet to dry, flip it over print the other side. On a web, you're printing both sides of the sheet at the same time. And if you don't have a way to dry the ink, because the web folds the paper into the signatures, as you discussed, you will have one big ink blob unless you're drying those. Like a big brick. Right. Yes. Like a solid ink brick. I'm sure that's happened a couple of times when something wasn't on correctly. And that's a paperweight now. (laughs) Well, that does happen if, say, the when they're mixing their inks and they're using their toners and their water, if the chemical balance is off, you can have more drying time needed or less drying time. So it's scientific also. So the sheet for printing you're talking about, I mean, that's almost like, like how automated is that? It is automated because now you actually have what we call roll sheeters. So at the end of the sheet fed press, you have a big roll of paper and then you have this cutter that cuts it to the size and feeds it into the printing press, the sheet fed press. But the thing is that typically sheet fed is used either for more, shall we say, bespoke books or if you have low quantities that you're printing because the web press can go exceedingly fast and in a matter of seconds you have 10,000 off. So if I, for instance, I'm getting like, let's say business cards or postcards printed and I'm getting like 500 or 1,000 of them so they're saying, oh, this is offset. It's probably printed on a sheet fed press. Yes. Okay. Yes. And I feel like probably a lot of people listening to this have actually therefore had something printed on a sheet fed press because a lot of us have done that. Right. And you can also gang things up, which Mm -hmm. printers may not tell you, but if you're printing only 500 of, let's say, business cards for you, but I need 500, they'll work out how many can fit on a sheet and try to keep similar colors on the same sheet. Okay, so the sheets go through the printer, they come off the printer. They have to be folded. Basically, when the sheets are dry, you have to move them to a folder. And there's a machine, depending upon, again, your trim size, number of pages, and how the sheet is folded. And it goes very quickly. So single sheets come out, and a folded signature comes out the other end. And they get cut, right? Like, I bought a book one time where they weren't cut correctly, which really made me aware of the fact that it's basically one big sheet of paper folded up. So the cutting will come when you're moving into the binding, because usually they'll gather the different signatures, Mm -hmm. and they'll put it into a book form, and then they will have blades come down as part of the process where they trim three sides. So it's like all one big origami together thing until the literal trim. And that's, by the way, why it's called trim size is because it's the size it's trimmed to by these big guillotine things that come down. Yeah. Don't put your hand in there. That's oh all God. I'll say. That would take your entire yes. arm off. That would, for sure. And when you see that the pages haven't been cut quite correctly, that means the blades have gotten dull and the printer hasn't done the maintenance to swap out those blades. 
So do do the pages move automatically between these these different stages or does someone have to physically like put them in a cart? So it usually comes off the press onto a pallet. The pallet is moved to the folding station if you're talking sheet fed and then it's put on the folder, then the signatures come off again onto a pallet. That pallet is moved to the binder, depending upon what type of binding you're doing. Let's say paperback, so then it moves, and you would take the different signatures and think of it as their little pocket gatherers. So there are people that feed the pockets. So the first signature drops down on the line, the next signature drops down on top of that, and so on and so forth until you've gathered a complete book. And then it goes through the trimming and glue mica on the spine if it's a paperback. And then you wrap the cover, which is a bigger size, so it's not trimmed either. And then at the last stage, just before, they will have that three-sided trim, and you'll have your finished book. So the covers are cut apart beforehand. They're each kind of basically cover-sized. Yes, but a little bit oversized because you need to trim. So the covers might print four or five up on a big sheet. They're trimmed down to within you know, a close trim, and then it's wrapped around individually on this machine, on the spine. And then when you get to the end, they do the final trim, and the book drops into a pallet or is picked up by hand and placed into cartons. You know, however, whether the publisher wants it all just on a big pallet or if there's certain carton requirements for weight and size, depending upon the book. I mean, obviously having a hardcover book severely complicates parts of this. Yes. How does that work differently? So that means depending upon the type of hardcover binding, so you still could have an adhesive binding, and there are different types of adhesive binding. So you can grind off the backbone, which is perfect. You can have little notches, which they shoot glue into, and that's notch binding. Or you could have burst binding, where there are little slits in the back of the folded signature, and they force glue into to it, or you could sew. So you could do smite sewing, which means then you take the signatures and think of a big sewing machine where the signatures drop and you just basically sew it. So some books could be side sewn, some books are smite sewn. And then once you have your signature block, they would then go to the casing and machine reminding people who, of course, would know this having listened to our vocabulary episode, the case is literally what the hardcover, like cover of a book is. And then the case can be either what we would call a POB, paper overboard. So it's a printed artwork kind of paper cover that's applied to the boards, or it could be a three-piece case, which could be colored sides and another color for the spine. And these are all made prior to the casing in, and it depends on what the designer has chosen and the editor and the... And sometimes there'll also be a jacket that then gets wrapped around the case. Yep. So a lot more time-consuming to make a hardcover book. Is the jacket a thing that the machine does, or do people have to manually wrap the jacket around, or does it depend on the setup at the printer? So it depends on the trim size of the book. It depends on the setup at the printer. Most printers have tried to automate that because it is time-consuming, and you would need a lot of people in the factory, and there is a cost to that, and how many could they wrap 
at a time. So for standard trims and books that have unusual elements, mostly would be machine wrap. And another side, this is why when you're, if you try to tell your publisher, I really want to have my book be like four inches by like 10 inches, because I think this might be why they might want want to do that, because they don't have a machine that's set up to print four by 10 inch books. Four by 10 (laughs) is a little bit extreme. And I'd say if you think about how it would sit on a shelf, it wouldn't be user friendly. But if you could be, let's say, seven by 10, That is actually something that we could do pretty generically, so not an issue. I really appreciate you evaluating my totally bullshit made-up trim size. Thank you very much. Now now I'm just imagining what book you'd make. Maybe like a subway book where it's like really thin subway cars. Right. Artisanal picture book. I'm sorry, Gina. (laughs) And then you'd have to think about how long it would be, because it could be a subway (laughs) car, but then you have to remember the printing press and how most printing presses... So you have 40-inch, you know, you have 20. You, There are a variety of – but you'd have to figure out how long could you have one continuous sheet. So probably I'm thinking when you're doing this printing, like the first few sheets that come off the machine aren't necessarily the things that you're going to use. And then it also sounds like if you're doing all this stuff where you're like putting things on pallets and transporting them, there's also sheets that kind of get discarded along the way because they're not exactly perfect. Yep. So there are make readies and that's to get a machine up and running until you actually can get a book offline or a sheet that's printed that looks exactly like the color you want. So there's make readies in printing, there's make readies in binding, there are make readies built into the total quantity throughout the whole process. So usually that's all calculated into your final run that you print. This is the reason why if you're asking a printer for 10,000 books, perhaps they will not give you exactly 10,000 books. Perhaps they will be like, it turned out 100 of these sheets were good that we did not expect. So now you have 1,104 books. Yes. And it can vary. And most publishers have what I'd call over and under policies, depending upon the original size of the run. So if I'm printing 2,000 books, I'm going to want give them a higher percentage over because I could really under deliver by a significant amount. So What happens with the plates after you're done with this printing? So typically the plates are discarded, but they're recycled. So usually they go through a recycling process. So if you, for example, published a very popular graphic novel and you were like, okay, we've run out of this book, we have to print it again, they would have to make the plates all over again. Yes, we make new plates for every printing. Presumably they wear out after a while anyway. They do. They have a maximum print run that you can usually without any degradation. Do you sometimes have to make more than one set of plates for a print run, depending if it's like a really popular book? If it's a really large print run, you might go through several sets of plates. It all depends on how big the run is. Obviously, this varies enormously, but like we're kind of throwing around numbers like big and small. Like, what is the actual range for like, you know, this is a major US publisher. What kind of print runs does like your average graphic novel get? Well, that's hard to say because we've done some graphic novels, but they've been 
mostly one-offs or part of a series. Mm -hmm. So we have done 5,000, we have done 10,000, we have done more than that. I think that we haven't thought about it as part of a bigger program and what makes a certain trim size more reader-friendly than other trim sizes, what where are they going to be sold, the displays that they go into. So there's a lot of thought that goes into that. I'd say if it's an initial printing, you probably don't want to do less. We've done three, we've done 4,500, 5,000. But typically, they're not many pages. Because once you get into a high page count, you have to look at what your unit cost is versus your cover price. And mm-hmm. and again, reminding listeners, but we had earlier conversations where we're talking about acquisitions and like, this is why if you have a really big book, and they're not sure if they can sell a lot of copies of it, this is the kind of conversation that might come up in acquisitions where they're like, well, we'd have to print a lot of this book to make it worth printing. Do we think we can sell that many copies of this book? And I think for the editor, that's always, you know, the challenge, because you find books that appeal to you, have a voice and a vision for what they could be. And, you know, I always say it's a crystal ball. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little about the differences between the printers in the U.S. that you're talking about and the printers in Asia? Is there a reason why to print graphic novels in one place or the other? So typically the labor rate is less overseas. I will say they have sheet-fed presses for the most part. There are some that have web presses, but typically they're smaller sheet-fed presses. They're used to printing smaller quantities. Just the costs of all the materials, et cetera, are less overseas. In the U.S., you have fewer printers. You have less choice on papers that are made here, and labor is very expensive. It becomes a balance of how do you price something that the average consumer will pay, because if it's out of pocket, you know, their pocketbook size, they're not going to buy it, no matter how much they may love a book. And so how do you put something that you believe deeply in the hands of many without compromising the value of what you're producing. So it's a balancing act. So you also mentioned previously, we kind of talked previously about um, Pantones. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little about Pantones, extra colors? I know you've done some novelty printing. Like how does it work when you have that that? extra thing like a die cut or a gears in your book I or only recently found out that extra colors were even a thing you could do so extra colors are not okay such an issue as they were years ago why do i say that because printing presses now are not just four color they could be five color six color ten color so there are options from that point of view the thing to keep in mind is that when you use a special color you have to have what they call a wash up so that's an extra expense because most printers will typically run process colors, CMYK. So if you want to do 
a fifth color or a sixth color. You have to really look at what is the run size, what is the price of the book, and you have to see if you can justify that. So we've had jackets where we have, for example, um, we had like the Aragon Christopher Polini series, and the dragon was the most important thing on the cover. The background around the dragon was a shade of blue. If it's for color, then how do you balance the dragon, which is for color artwork, and the solid background color around it? So my suggestion was to go to a fifth color so that you could really focus on the dragon, Saphira, which is in the middle of the cover, and make sure that she wasn't too red, she wasn't too blue, she looked how she should look. And then by having the fifth color blue, you could keep that separate and it didn't interfere with the four color. So oftentimes it's how you can creatively get to the best color reproduction for the artwork. Is that how they handle things like neon colors also, which can be kind of hard to reproduce or is that? So neon colors, I think it really, so you have to really look at what is it you're trying to achieve? What is the artwork? Even if you use neon colors, is it really going to accomplish what you want to do? There are a lot of other printing styles. So there's high def where they were using an orange and a green to kind of increase that neon. It really starts with evaluating the artwork and thinking about, is that really going to give you what you're looking for? And I think involving the pre-press house, the printer, and production in that conversation sometimes may take you down a different road. And when you said wash up earlier, you mean literally washing washing all this up ink the press? Out of- yep, exactly. <laughs> you have to wash it all out, and you ha- you don't want to like mix it with something else because you'll come up with who knows what color. You can't put but, your weird blue into yes. somebody else's book. Exactly. So you really need to take it, flush it out and wash out the color and put in your new color and of something the size of a football field so probably like take significant amounts of washing it does if you're doing on a sheet fed press it's probably a little better you know web press because they're built for speed and the cost of running them is more money than running a sheet fed press so yes so especially in Arty, fancy graphic novels. Uh, people might have noticed books that are mostly in black and white and have one or two color, like solid color. They maybe yep. it's printed at different opacities, yes. but it's always the same color. Yes. And uh, Scott McCloud's The Sculptor yes. was like this. For example, this book that I have right here, which is Mariko Tamaki and Rosemary Valero O'Connell's Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, which we can see is it has a kind of a nice peachy. Yeah. Yes. So they probably priced it as a three color because it looks like three colors to me. And, you know, you just need to look at your number of pages, your print run, what you paid for the book, and how does that work in relationship to your cover price. We've done that. We did the Baby Mouse series with um, a special pink and a black. And, you know, the image was really more impactful that way because it really stood out. Is it less expensive to print? So believe it or not, it, okay, you have to, for that particular book, it was cheaper to print it on a two-color press. If you have a four-color press, it actually is more expensive. So the big challenge was finding a printer that had a two-color press that basically had capacity year-round because a lot of two-color presses are used 
for educational books or manuals like let's say a tool manual or whatever. So you need to know like will you have the capacity if it takes off? I love this because the reason why people love that aesthetic is often a nostalgia for that kind of look in things like textbooks that they had when they were a child and it's because it's literally printed the same way (laughs) by the same printers. Oh my God, really. And you know, I priced those particular books at a number of printers and it was interesting because I had one price that, and it wound up, it was the two-color press that really made the difference but then was that did we have capacity because that series took off and having to reprint it and if you're competing with educational books or other books at different times a year how do you get back in stock so what about covers like oftentimes they'll have effects right so they'll have spot uv they'll have foil they'll have embossing or debossing they'll have die cuts yeah. how do those get into the cover that is printed so it starts again with the artwork and sometimes people just want to put effects on a book because i think the best use of effects is actually looking at the artwork and then thinking about what effects will enhance that so you know sometimes you'll print on a pearlescent stock because you want to have kind of that shimmery kind of unicorny yes and it really starts with the artwork and you know just to put spot and matte on a cover might not be the best choice and to be honest sometimes so matte lamination tends to flatten colors and that's fine if that's the look you're going for Sometimes that's not the look, so you really want to pop it with a glossy film lamb. And it starts with the art, and it starts with the vision. So it's how do you enhance rather than just kind of tack things on that don't make it any better. And then so for the printing process, do the printers create like more plates that just go for the cover? So it's not just plates. It's all about process. So if you're printing for color and then you're going to a mat, then that adds another, let's say, call it day. So each type of process you add to the cover or jacket can add more time. Because it has to dry. It has to dry. It has to go to another. So it finishes here and it moves on to the next stage where they may add foil. But, you know, that can add more time. So if you have a book that's a bestseller and you have 10 different effects on your jacket, you could be out of stock because you might not be able to replenish aside from cost. So it's time and it's cost. And we typically say each of those adds, you know, a day or a pass. I think it was Gina I was just talking to about this, but maybe I'm wrong. How do they do embossing? Like, what kind of machine does that? So it depends. And the setup can be quite long because you want to have the die with the weight. So there's basically pressure Mm -hmm. that is touching the paper, but it can't be too much pressure that it breaks through the paper. And it depends on what type of die. So if you have an embossing die or a you know, you sometimes will have a multi-level die. So let's say if you're doing dragon scales, and one time I did dragon scales. So we had a multi-level die and trying to figure out what should be the deepest level, what should be the next level, and then applying the pressure. So think of it as they, okay, what is the terminology I'm blanking out right now? But you have a 
a top and a bottom, and basically the sheet is in the middle, and you want to apply the appropriate pressure. So it's to like a that. mold that you're so squishing. it's like a mold that you're squishing, but you're putting like ten thousand pounds of pressure. It's some crazy mm-hmm. number of pressure that you're putting on that. And you're trying to push it to the extreme to get the most embossing, but not where you actually break through the paper. When you think about how fragile paper really is, it's kind of amazing that you can do this. So it's good to think about this because it's like, it might sound like, oh, why don't I put embossing on my cover? It's like, okay, but that's like a whole, it's like a giant waffle iron that has to be made just for your book. Yes. (laughs) And you have to look at the cost of that because depending upon how complicated the dye is, there's a lot of work that goes into that and the cost can be pretty expensive. How does spot gloss work? Is it called UV spot gloss? Because I assume you shine UV light on it at some point. Well, it depends. Let's say you start with a matte film laminated book and then you want to apply a spot gloss. So the matte lamination is actually, think of it like saran wrap, only um, like foggy, I guess would be (laughs) the best way to put it. And you're applying that saran wrap to your printed sheet. And then on top of that, you want to have your, you know, spot UV. And sometimes you may actually find that you're doing a spot UV on a mat and it's not doing the effect that you want. Is this something that's printed onto it? Is it like... It's printed on. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so for example, you can use a Sakurai press so you could silk screen it on. Okay. Okay. Um, And it depends what you start with and liquid coatings, they're all, they're UV, there's a variety of them. And you have to also think about like if you want a gritty mat UV, that's where you actually kind of have like, okay, think of it like sand Mm -hmm. in the coating. So it's kind of a rough coating, but how rough do you want it? So it's a goo you're putting. Okay. I didn't realize it was goo. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah, So when people in the smaller independent comics print publishing industry print things, sometimes you get books that are Rezo printed. Sometimes you get ones that are fully screen printed all the way through. They're really attractive. Is that something that would work for a large publishing house? Like, how how do those processes work? So the problem with it is when you're a smaller independent publishing house, you don't have as big an overhead. And I think it varies because I've worked at a lot of houses. So it dep- each P&L is different. And a PNL and a PNL is. is a profit and loss sheet. So that's usually when the editor acquires the book, how much advance they're paying, and all the costs for editorial, for copy editing, for all the different entities. So it really depends on what your cover price is, what your print run is. I'd say for the most part, at a larger publisher, it's harder to do those because the overhead is really... You know, you have to think about how many hits do you need to cover the bottom line. And how are those processes different from the web press or the sheep fed press? So they're slower. I have to say I've never done Rezo, so I really can't speak to that. That's not something that I've done. Silk screening is a very slow process and costly process. And... There are not a lot of places where you can do that. 
it's usually a smaller shop and it's not going to work for someone like a penguin random house meaning because if something takes off again you want to be able to get it back into the market it's not scalable no yeah it's really not so you recently had a giant printing adventure where you went to Asia, you toured a lot of printing plants. Like, how was that? And why Why is doing that important for someone who's in production? So it's important because, number one, we work with certain printers. We like to go over and see for ourselves the plants, what investments they've made. We typically go to make sure, okay, that they're conducting good business practices. So we're looking for environmentally compliant. We're looking for no child labor. We're looking that they have good safety protocols in place for the people that work in the factory. Um, That all seems really good. And it's all important. I mean, in the U.S., it's more regulated. So we have OSHA. We have a lot of different, you know, unions that obviously impact on number of hours, wages that you can make for that, etc. In Asia, when we first started printing there, it was kind of like the Wild West, which is like how the U.S. used to be, quite honestly, years ago. So um, we go there to kind of see with our own eyes. I like to walk into a plant. I like to look at the people that are working in the plant. You could tell a lot by the workers that are in the plant. Are they happy? Aren't they engaged? Are they happy they're there? You want to also actually see that the printer you're contracting with actually has the equipment they say they have that you <laughs> know super important I have also. to say one time years ago when we were doing a bath book it was pretty funny one of my art directors went over and we had started working with a new smaller plant and it was really like something I won't say quite in your garage but you know it can vary. So you really want to have eyes and see. And you also want to hear what they're doing. What are they investing in? What are they next putting in? And for me, it's been interesting because you go to Asia, and Asia's having their industrial revolution that we had here. And it's kind of funny because you go there and you talk about, oh, printing in Asia and this and that and lower costs. But what I've seen is that it's less hand labor, it's more automation, it's really mimicking kind of what we've gone through here. And, you know, it's fascinating to see they're still investing a lot in new equipment, which I love to see because in the U.S. I'd say you've seen less of an investment in new printing equipment because it runs for certain times a year and then it's slower and the cost is quite high so i love going there to see what new technologies many times in asia you'll see things that you will see later on in the u.s and it's always fascinating to me to see that so so you brought up environmentalism when you were talking about that can you talk about what you're interested in in making good environmental decisions when you're printing books that are made of presumably at least partially of trees that people are having to cut down to make into books. So here's what I say about forestry 
a responsible paper mill and a responsible forester, you have to actually thin out your trees. You have to actually keep planting. And actually, most paper mills, if you go, for example, to Maine, Maine has a lot of trees, and that's because they are harvesting trees, but printing, always printing, and doing, sometimes you even have to do what they call burns, because you don't want the older trees to kind of fall over or turn into a forest fire. So if you do responsible, shall we say, echo farming of trees, then it's good for the environment because you're constantly replacing younger trees and they're putting more and more oxygen. I think people feel if you use recycled that that's using less invasive kinds of practices. And I will say that to recycle paper, you have to bleach it. You have to do a lot of things that actually can have more chemicals can have more than chemicals, just replanting right. a tree. Well, Correct. Especially printing a, a shiny graphic. It's different yes. than printing a newspaper or paper right. towels or whatever. Yep. You have to de-ink. So you have to take the ink off the sheet. You weaken the fibers in the paper because then they're shorter fibers. So I think as long as a mill follows what I'd call good forestry and good environmental practices, so trying to use less water in the papermaking process to actually, you know, clean the water that they put back, I think that those are the types of things that are more helpful in the long run and are smart moves. So if there are people who are listening to this episode who are hearing about printing and thinking that it sounds fascinating, what sort of jobs are there in the U.S. for people who want to be working with printing? There are lots of jobs. I think that perhaps sometimes people don't see them as sexy jobs, okay? But what I will say is printing plants are looking to hire people in the U.S. It can be something where you start out at the very lowest, so basically packing cartons or, you know, gathering signatures. But if you're willing and committed, you can learn a lot about the craft of printing and how to make books. And books, I think, are good for everybody. And there is a career and It's actually amazing when I think about the evolution of printing over the years when Ben Franklin started to where we are now. It's just kind of mind-blowing what you can do with technology. And if you care about physical objects such as the book, it's a great career. So that's one entity of it. And then in publishers, you have production people. So you have people that need to understand the technical process of making a book. And how do we work in conjunction with the editor, with the designer to come up with what is a good suggestion to their creative needs? And how do we make it so that we can do it at a cost that they can afford and that we can reproduce. It's really interesting in the last five or ten years how many more cartoonists are directly interfacing with not only the printing industry but much larger scale, like uh, crowdfunding, overseas printing. So it has happened throughout, but probably you didn't hear about it as much. I will say that that's why they're print brokers, because there are smaller clients that 
are looking to have something printed. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing to exercise is good common sense. So I like to say whatever it is you're buying, if you're buying your next TV, your next iPad, whatever it is, have your list of questions and ask them of the print broker. Because sometimes if it's too cheap, there's a hidden catch and you really need to kind of do your homework because you don't want to find out that what you've paid for is not what you're getting. Because they can't go there and see, for instance, that they actually have the machine they say that they did. Right. (laughs) Right. I mean, and quite honestly, most print brokers, I'd say, or a lot of them are very reliable and have forged long-term connections with generally smaller plants, not Typically, the larger plants usually have their own sales reps, but if you're a smaller plant and you're looking to capture some more market share, you will use a print broker. And print brokers can be very knowledgeable, but I think, like anything, when someone says, oh, I can self-publish my book and I can do it on whatever website they've found, just ask a few pertinent questions, do some research, don't just buy a pig in a poke, as they say. Yeah, maybe see if any of your friends have worked with them or anything. Yeah. Okay. Um, is there anything else that you want to talk about that we didn't cover? So I think the thing for me, like, okay, going back to China, it's amazing to see the evolution over the years, to see that the government is really cracking down on environmental. So you will see that plants are being shut down or paper mills that don't comply with more stringent environmental regulations, which I think is good for all of us because we're all on the same planet. So that's always fascinating. And it's always fascinating to actually see and meet the people you work with, whether it's in the U.S. or overseas, because when you have that relationship, it's like a partnership. So you share and you're all part of the same team. And I think that makes a difference. Awesome. So... If people are listening to this and they're wanting to find out more about you and follow you through the world of printing, are you online in any way where they can do that? So I am on Twitter. Um, It's pretty hysterical because I don't think I – I have, like, tweeted a handful of times, but I'm at Linda Powell on Twitter, and so they could reach me there. And if they know – Gina, they can reach me through you. So. Yes, or also possibly the Random House Children's Books has a Twitter yes. account as well. Yes, they do. So happy to answer questions. And, you know, when you're in production, you love being part of this, how shall I say, this process, this great team that we all are part of. Even if we're not an editor, we're helping you and your designers and your illustrators and authors to get a bigger voice. And I always like to say to my adult colleagues that if we don't get them first, you won't have them later. So children's books, I think, really are powerful for kids of all ages, and it leads to a lifetime of reading. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us and talking about all this. It was a whole lot of fun. Well, thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Graphic Novel TK. Um, Next time, we're going to be talking about advocating for a book within a publishing house and who does that, how they get all the other people at the publishing house excited about a book, 
and more to come. I want to know if it's like Newsies or not. That's what I want to know. Is there singing? Is there shouting? Does anybody get up on top of a large object? Are there hats also? I do want hats. Probably at least one hat. Anyway, stay tuned. Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at GraphicNovelTK or email us at GraphicNovelTK at gmail.com. Went through a number of other different publishers and ended up at Random House. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Oh, no. No, it's fine.